Good morning, church. I always start by telling you that I love you. It feels a little different this morning, uh, even though I know that we all need to hear that maybe even a little bit more, that we are loved by God and we are loved by each other. Uh, I love you and I appreciate you. This morning, it's going to be strange. I'm going to preach and I'm going to look around this auditorium while I'm preaching, even though you know what I know and that the fact that... Uh, this auditorium is empty and that there's a lot of empty seats in here and every one of you is at home. But I want you to know that when I look out at this empty auditorium, I'm going to be imagining not just these empty seats that are here, but I'm going to be imagining uh, the church family that I love and seeing your faces and longing for the time in a few weeks, hopefully, when we can all be back here together and shake each other's hands and give each other hugs and reassure each other and tell each other how much we love each other. And I truly hope that during this season of having to be distant from each other because of what's going on, that we don't grow disconnected and that we find new ways to connect with each other and better ways to connect with each other, even when we have to be a little bit distant. But I do want to tell you that I love you and I appreciate all of you. Uh, it's funny, I tend to plan out what I'm going to preach uh, about a year in advance or so, and I plan out different sermon series and different titles, different scripture readings, different scriptures that I want to preach for about a year. And sometimes people will ask me, well, how can you, how can you plan out that far in advance? What if something happens in the world or what ha something happens in the community that you need to address before when that, that week gets there, do you change what you had planned to preach about? Uh, and it's interesting. I'm not against changing what I was planning to preach, uh, and I may have to do that even in this, the middle of this crisis, but it's interesting to me how very often the scripture or the, the idea that I was planning to preach ends up being exactly what we need to hear in that moment. And I believe that God is behind that uh, and orchestrates that sort of thing. Uh, God's word is always incredibly relevant in any season. And it's interesting to me how often uh, when something big and something bad or something difficult or challenging happens in the world, how the passage of scripture that you go to tends to be exactly what you needed to hear in that moment. You know, this crisis, and I'm going to use that word quite a bit this morning, crisis, but this crisis that's going on right now is incredibly different for all of us. I know that it's incredibly different for me in my lifetime. In my lifetime, I've never been in a crisis that applied to everybody. And when I think about crisis that I've been through in my life, it's usually a personal crisis, a personal thing. My family is going through something. My friends are going through something. My church family is going through something. But it's something that the rest of the community or the rest of the world knows nothing or very little about. It's something that's going on uh, with me. But this current crisis isn't personal. It's global and everybody is struggling with it, and everybody's dealing with it. But you know, as I thought about that idea that we're in the middle of a global crisis, a global situation, a global hardship, it doesn't feel global sometimes. Every crisis feels personal. And it feels personal because it affects us personally. It affects our fears. It affects our bank account. It affects our family. This is 
the disappointment and the fear and the pain that I'm feeling, that you're feeling, and it feels very personal to us. And we may not say this out loud, but crisis can sometimes cause us to question our relationship with God. Crisis can sometimes cause us to question our relationship with God, whether that's a big global crisis or a national crisis or a personal crisis. Again, every crisis feels personal. And in that moment where your family or your church or your community or your country or your world is going through something, the moment that it hits your bank account or it hits your family, it hits your heart, We tend to ask, and sometimes we ask questions like, does God really love me? Does he care? We might even ask ourselves, do I have a right because of the mistakes I've made, because of the things that I've done? Do I have a right to ask God to make it better? Do I have a right to ask God, save me from this situation, help me with this situation, help relieve my pain, help me to get through this? Sometimes if we're not careful, this crisis that we're going through might become not only a personal crisis, but it might become a crisis of faith. But here's the good news. The good news is that most of the Bible, most of the Bible is written to and about people living in the midst of crisis. Most of the Bible is written to people in crisis, whether they're being persecuted or whether they're going through something incredibly difficult and helping them to understand how to navigate that, or it's written about people who were going through a crisis, and then that writing helps future generations to go through and navigate those types of crisis. In fact, we've been looking at the book of 2 Samuel and we've talked about how 2 Samuel is actually just a part of a four book series, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And so you have these stories, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, and 2nd Kings, and they are written to the Israelites, to the Jews that are living in Babylonian captivity, helping them to understand not only how they got there, but how to navigate living as exiles. Talk about a crisis. Being taken out of your homeland deported and exiled to a foreign country, growing up and living in and maybe even dying in a foreign land, being oppressed and persecuted and hurt. And David's life, David's crisis, David's story of his family and sort of all of the things that happened in his family helped Israel to understand their place in all of this and help them to navigate their crisis. So David's story about his family and his crisis helped Israel in the midst of their crisis, and it helps us in the midst of our crisis. So we continue to look at the story and the life of David and ask how can his story help us to navigate not only our current crisis, because we're all in the midst of this current situation, But I keep reminding myself that this isn't the only thing you have going on. 
the coronavirus is not the only thing on your radar. It's not the only thing on your plate. It's not the only thing that you're dealing with. And maybe you're dealing with other personal crises in your life. And this story of David and how David navigated and dealt with and lived in crisis not only was written for the sake of Israel to help them as they lived in Babylonian exile, but it's written so that you can be encouraged and so that you can know how to navigate the crisis that you're living in. So our text this morning starts in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Uh, this is the story, and we're going to look at Psalm 3 in a minute, but in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, after this Absalom, you remember Absalom is David's son who murdered David's other son, Amnon, and was exiled for a while, and David brought him back. It says, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a, a tribe in Israel, then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated to, by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. You see, see what Absalom's doing? He, his dad is the king, but he would go out and he would meet the, the common people who were coming to the king for justice. And he would go and meet them before they could come to the king. And he would say, where are you from? And they'd tell him where they were from. And he'd say, what's your problem? What do you have going on? Why, why do you need to see someone? And they would explain the problem that they're going, that they're dealing with, the crisis that they're dealing with. And Absalom would say, oh, if only I were king, if only I were the judge, if only I could give you justice, if, if only I was in a position to help, then I would, I'd, I'd help you out, but I'm not. And so, of course, he's being incredibly manipulative, and it, it goes to show that politics and propaganda are nothing new, but he's undermining and betraying and rebelling against his own father's leadership and kingship. And he's doing it right under David's nose. Verse 5, And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So, I love this phrase because it's so... <laughs> captures exactly what Absalom is doing. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He was stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. And then he devises this plan where he goes up to Hebron and he, and he causes people to come with him and he's going to be crowned king at Hebron. In 2 Samuel 15 and verse 10, it says, Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. They didn't know about his conspiracy and his plan to take over the kingdom and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. I just want to kind of pause right there for a second. Ahithophel is David's counselor, his friend, someone who would give him advice, someone David trusted. 
And now Ahithophel is joining forces with this rebel and betrayer who happens to be David's own son from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And eventually, of course, David finds out about the conspiracy. He finds out that Absalom has this plan to take over and to overthrow the government and to come into Jerusalem and to set up his own kingship. But, I mean, just think for a second. Not only is David's own son betraying him and rebelling against him and overthrowing his kingdom, but his friends, people that he trusted like Ahithophel, were betraying him and working against him. And so David and his men and his people leave Jerusalem before Absalom can get there and can, uh, because if Absalom got to town while David was still there, of course he would, he would have him killed and there would be a big battle. And so David leaves before that happens. But again, I just kind of want to stop and think about what's going on. I mean, it's really, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine the crisis that other people are going through. Sometimes when we're going through a crisis, maybe like the global one we're we're dealing with now, or maybe even just as families, maybe the other crises that you have going on in your life, then we can empathize with the people in Scripture because these are real people. David is a real person with real feelings who loved his son and who felt incredibly betrayed by what Absalom is doing. He felt incredibly betrayed by what his friends are doing. And now he's been driven out of his, out of his palace, out of his city, out of Jerusalem, and he's leaving sort of in exile and in shame. Look at 2 Samuel 15 and verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. I mean, just, can you picture that? Barefoot, head covered, just weeping and wailing over what's happened. I mean, what we're going through now is incredibly challenging and, and difficult, But I can't even imagine being even just one of David's men, being driven out of town, being exiled out of Jerusalem because now Absalom has come in and he's going to take over and now he's going to run things. And so everybody that's loyal to David has to leave town. And so they they leave town in utter disgrace. But there's not not just shame and not just sadness at being rejected and being betrayed but, but there's also a sense of guilt because actually what's happening here to David is what Nathan, the prophet, said to David was going to happen in chapter 12 when David sinned with Bathsheba. So this, what's happening now, his son taking over and driving him out of town is a consequence for his own sin. For the things that David did, now he's dealing with the consequences of his own sin. And I can't help but imagine that as the, the people of Israel, the Jews read this many, many decades and decades later in captivity, in exile. And as they're thinking about this story, about David being exiled from Jerusalem and leaving in shame and leaving in tears and really dealing with the consequences of his own sin and misbehavior. 
I, I imagine that the people who were reading this thought of their own situation. We've sinned, and because we've sinned, we've been exiled away from Jerusalem. We've left in sin. You know, when you're in those types of situations where you're saying, this situation is my fault, or maybe this situation is my fault, or, or maybe not even this situation is my fault, but, but maybe because of my sin, I don't even deserve to ask God to help me. That's exactly what Satan would have us to believe. Why would God help you? And don't you know that that's many times how the, the children of Israel felt when they were in exile in Babylon? Why, why would I assume that God would help us? We've blown it. We've messed up. And sometimes when we feel like we've hit rock bottom and we're going through incredibly difficult things and we know that maybe God could save us, sometimes we may feel guilty about things that we've done in the past and we think, who am I to even ask God to help me? Maybe I'm going through this and maybe I'm struggling through this because of the things that I've done. But the thing about David is that he continues to trust God in spite of his past sins and his current situation. And that's what we're going to read in Psalm chapter 3. So that's our next text. And Psalm 3 says that this was written... This was written when David was fleeing from Absalom. And this is a psalm of trust in God. And it's really amazing, isn't it? That David would express such confidence that God is going to save me. God is going to deliver me in spite of what's going on, in spite of the current situation, and in spite of his past sins. David remains steadfast in his confidence that it will get better. God will save me. This crisis will come to an end. Look at Psalm 3 and verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. See, that's exactly what the enemy tells us. It's exactly what Satan says when we're going through a difficult time. God would never save her. God would never save him. Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know what she's done? God isn't going to take care of them. God isn't going to bless them. God isn't going to get them out of this situation. God isn't going to deliver them. And not only is this psalm applicable to David, but this is a song that the people of Israel would continue to sing when they were being oppressed, when they were being afflicted, when they were going through crisis even sometimes when the crisis was their fault. They went into captivity because of their sins. And don't you know that that thought echoed through their mind time and time again? Why would God listen to us? Why would God deliver us? And don't you know that that's the taunt? God would never save you. And that's what David says people are saying about him. There is no salvation for him in God. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord. This is what other people say, that God would never save him. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. My shield, that is my protector, my glory. 
That is, the one who will restore my honor. Again, when you think of these words, don't just think of David. Because it's David, yes, and God would restore his honor and would vindicate him. But think also about the children of Israel who would continue to sing this in the midst of their crises. And think about you in your life, that God can be your shield and your glory and the lifter of my head, the one who will take away my shame. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down, look at verse five, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Think about that for just a second. I lay down and slept in the middle of the crisis, in the middle of running away, in the middle of being rejected, in the middle of being betrayed, in the middle of my kingdom being overthrown, in the middle of my world being torn apart. Let me ask you, who can sleep? Who can sleep in the middle of their world falling apart? Who can still lay down and get rest and rest in peace when, the, when their world is falling apart. There's only really maybe one kind of person who can sleep when their world is falling apart. And that's the kind of person who knows who can put their world back together. The only way you can sleep when your world is falling apart is when you know the one who can put your world back together. When you know the one who can put your world back together, then you can rest. And you can trust him and you can sleep. And David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. This is why the children of Israel had to learn to sing this song. Because there were going to be moments in their life when things were going horribly wrong and they still needed to sleep and they still needed to rest. And the only way for them to sleep and rest when their world was falling apart is for them to trust the one who can put their world back together. Verse six says, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. I will not be afraid. You know, I wonder, how often do we plan to worry? How often do we plan to worry? How often do we say to ourselves, if this happens, I don't know how I would handle it. If this happens, I would be so afraid. If this happens, I would be so scared. If this happens, I would fall to pieces. But listen to the words of the song, not only that David sang, but that the children of Israel would continue to sing generation after generation after generation in the midst of crisis. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. No matter what happens, I'm going to plan to be unafraid. What if if we did that? What if we planned to be unafraid? We planned not to worry. Whatever happens, whatever comes, whoever's against me, Whatever falls apart, whatever's going on, I'm going to plan to be unafraid. Now, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. 
For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Do you you see the confidence of this psalm? This confidence that in the middle of whatever's going on, in the middle of the current situation, and in spite of the past sins, David expresses confidence that God will save him. David doesn't say, you know, I don't, I don't know, God, if, if I even have a right to ask you to save me, and I don't really know if you'll show up on my behalf. I mean, God, I've messed a lot of things up. In spite of what's going on, in spite of the current situation, and in spite of the past sins, David is confident in the midst of the crisis that God will save him and that God will bless his people. And so this has got me thinking that confidence in crisis is based on covenant relationship. Let's kind of sit with that for just a second. Confidence in crisis is based on covenant relationship. In spite of whatever is going on right now, because sometimes we think this right now, this situation that I'm going through, it proves what God thinks of me. It proves how God loves me. And when we're going through a hard time, we think, well, God must not really love me very much. And we allow our current situation to define whether or not we can be confident in God's salvation. And we say, I don't, I don't know, and I don't feel like I deserve it, and maybe because I'm going through these things, I, I shouldn't even approach God in prayer. But David is going through a crisis that I can't even imagine. And in spite of his current situation, he has confidence in God. And in spite of his past sins, David has messed up royally. David has messed up big time. And a lot of what he's going through in the midst of this is the consequence of his own sin, of his adultery, of his murdering the wife of, or the husband, murdering Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. He's a murderer and an adulterer. But in spite of his past sins, he continues to have confidence in God. Why? Because he has a covenant relationship with God. God has forgiven his sins. And God has assured him, you're mine and I'm yours. And not only, again, is this psalm applicable to David and his relationship with God, but it's applicable to the children of Israel who were living in the midst of exile. But in spite of their current situation and in spite of their past sins, they could have confidence in God, confidence that he would deliver them, that he would reconcile them, that he would bring them back home, that he would redeem them. But their confidence in the crisis didn't come from their own perfection. Their confidence in the midst of crisis was because of their covenant relationship with God. This whole series this month that we've been talking about, about flawed but faithful, is a reminder that you and I, if we're children of God through faith in Jesus, if we're in a covenant relationship with God because of Jesus, then we need to embrace a lifestyle of faithfulness, but we also need to embrace an identity of faithfulness, to say, I am a faithful person. I am a faithful, and that almost sounds 
It almost sounds arrogant or proud to say, I'm faithful. But I want us to understand that faithfulness does not mean flawless. That you don't have to be perfect to say, I am a faithful follower of Jesus. And if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, then you're in covenant relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. And your present circumstances are not necessarily a reflection of what God thinks of you. That in spite of whatever crisis you're going through, that you can have the confidence, the boldness to approach the throne of God, to approach the throne of grace and to find mercy and help in time of need. That you can go to God and say, as David said, save me, oh my God. Strike my enemies, raise me up, deliver me, help me, bless me. In the middle of crisis, you can have confidence. Why? Because you have a covenant relationship with God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We've already blown the whole perfection thing. We've already blown the whole flawless thing. But we can be faithful And as God's covenant people, if we are in covenant with him, then we can have confidence in the midst of our crisis. And so maybe maybe this is more directly applicable to the current global crisis, or maybe it's applicable to your own personal crisis. Crisis that's going on in your family or crisis that's going on with people that you love, maybe your friends, maybe your finances, whatever it is that you're going through. I don't want any of God's people, God doesn't want any of his people to go through a a crisis without confidence in him. It doesn't mean confidence that he's going to fix it tomorrow. It doesn't mean confidence that he's going to fix it next week. It doesn't even mean confidence that he's going to fix it in our lifetime. But we know that there is a better world and a better life coming. We know that God will raise us from the dead. We know in the end we're victorious and we win and we have nothing to fear. And that even in the midst of this crisis, we can ask God, deliver me, save me, help me, bless me. And we can have confidence that he listens to us and he'll answer us, not because of who we are, but because we're in covenant relationship with him through Jesus. Now listen, I know it's, it's weird because we're, we're not together, but if you're not in covenant relationship with God through Jesus, if you haven't been baptized into Jesus, we've already used this baptistry once during this whole uh, social distancing thing, and, and we'll use it again. So if you need to be baptized into Jesus, contact me, contact the church office, contact one of our elders, Contact a church in your local area and we'll help you put Jesus on in baptism. Or maybe you just need prayers as you go through whatever crisis you're going through in your life and maybe we can help you in some way. Reach out to us. Just because we're a little bit distant right now doesn't mean we have to remain disconnected. Let's help each other and bless each other and let's go through this crisis with confidence because we are God's covenant people. Let's let's end with a prayer. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful that you have brought us into a covenant relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have confidence in the midst of crisis 
because of our covenant relationship with you, to know that you love us and you listen to us and you will save us and you will deliver us. If not in this very moment, we know, Father, at least in the age to come, in the resurrection, we have all of the promises and all of the blessings that you have to offer us because of Jesus. And we know that in this moment, you will walk through it with us and you will be with us. And we look forward to everything that you have planned for us and the ways that you plan to bless your people now and forever. Father, I pray that you help us to love and bless one another and that you help us to be people that have bold confidence to come before your throne of grace. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.